Esther chapter 7, um, and it's going to be verse 1. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, O king, and if, if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And and spare my people. This is my request. For I am and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would be justified, uh, would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallow 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Hang him on it. So the king, or so they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Chapter 8, verse 3. Esther again pleaded with the king, following all his feet and weeping, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Verse 7. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name and in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed by with his ring can be revoked. Chapter nine, verse one. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out on this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. Verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near, the, near and far, to have them celebrate annually on the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as a time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy, giving, giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. This is God's word. Thanks, Phil. Good morning, everybody. Strange being back up here after a month. It was nice. Thank you guys for letting my family and I have a sabbatical for the last month. It was enriching. It is good to be back. It's good to see your faces. I also had a birthday this past week, so thank you all for helping me not feel as old as I do already with all the kind words and the gifts and the parties, and I'm, I'm feeling great. Um, 
And it's just, it's just good to be back here with you and see all your faces, um, some new faces even in the last month. So if I haven't met you yet, I, I hope to get to know you. Um, yesterday, I took the boys out. Uh, of course, Lily's gone to Thailand or whatever country she's currently in now on her missions trip. Um, my daughter, so I just had the boys. So we, we had been busy all day doing all this stuff. And I said, you guys want to go down and check out the ships on the harbor? So we went down there. Have you guys been to the Maritime Museum? Anybody? So we walk on the first ship, and Gavin's going crazy because it's a pirate ship. And he's six. And this is the most amazing thing. And there's a real cannon right there, Dad. Oh, my gosh, it's a cannon. And he goes, are there other ships with other cannons? And then because this is six-year-old boy, this is what he cares about. I'm like, yes, there are other ships with other cannons. We even went to the submarine. He was like, where's the cannons? I was like, those are the torpedoes. And he's like, oh, you know, it's amazing. And so then we ended up at this one, like, Spanish galley kind of a ship. And, and he was like, Dad, where's the cannons? That's all, that's all he cared about. And I was like, well, you know, Gavin, not all the ships need cannons. And he's like, then how do they kill the bad guys? <laughs> I was like, well, if there's no bad guys. He's like, Dad, there's always bad guys. What are you talking about? He looked at me cross-eyed. Um, I thought about that, and I thought, you know what, he's, he's actually right, in a sense, because there are always bad guys, aren't there? There are always these enemies to the work of God in our lives. There are enemies, and, and one of the things I started thinking as I was prepping this sermon is, at the end of this passage, there's this interesting verse, verse 22, where it says, Esther finally secured rest from her enemies, from their enemies. And I thought, man, what did that look like? rest from their enemies. In other words, the Israelites, they'd experienced rest from their enemies. They had, you know, experienced freedom from Egypt and rest from the slave masters and the taskmasters. But then along the road, they're getting attacked all over the place by enemies. And they finally get into the promised land. They have to fight to get the promised land. And people come in and invade them. And say, is that me? It's my jacket? But I didn't... Does this work? Now you guys are going to see my sweat spots. <laughs> um, yeah, we're officially a no-suit church, I think. You know, we're so Cal Vance. Take the suit off, okay? Um, you know, they just face enemy after enemy after enemy. And the great desire of the heart of any Israelite was, when are we going to have rest from our enemies? So God tells them in Deuteronomy 12, God says, you will cross the Jordan, you will settle in the land, and the Lord will give you rest from all your enemies. Deuteronomy 25, the Lord will give you rest from all the enemies around you. And some of you may not think you have enemies. Some of you know better. Gavin knew better. Gavin's like, there's always bad guys, Dad, right? But we all know there's something wrong with this world. There's the, the anger and the conflict and criticism, and people will abuse you and misuse you, and take you for granted, and they'll lie to you, and they'll ghost you, which is a new thing. It's like the opposite of stalking, where they just disappear and unfriend you on all the social networks. Have you guys heard of this? Ghosting. I kind of want to try it just to do it, but I can't. I don't have the heart. You know, people lie. They avoid. They attack you. They, 
They do all kinds of stuff. And we've developed these like oversized adrenal glands where we're always like fighting or flighting or freezing. And just think about it on a national level, the constant fear of war and conflict. Or in the political level, the political landscape of America and all the angry rhetoric about all the issues and the brokenness brought to light this past year in the, in the Me Too movement. Thank God for shedding a light on some of that brokenness or some of the inequality and evil exposed through the civil rights struggles or your workplace or your classroom or your home and the constant strife and the anger and the clashing of souls wouldn't rest from our enemies be great. Rest so they know they can't hurt us. Rest so we know we've got peace instead of conflict. That's what God promised to Israel. Rest was going to be the upshot of his salvation. So, so how do we secure that promised rest today? How can we, in, in 2018, how can we begin to experience that kind of rest from our enemies in our daily lives? And through the text, we see three things. We see how rest, um, how Esther got rest from her enemies how Jesus gets us rest from our enemies, and how we can experience ongoing rest from our enemies. You guys ready? All right. Point number one, Esther got rest from her enemies. Chapter seven tells us how Esther got rest from her enemies. And you know the backstory. Many of you have been here through the whole series, so you've heard some of this, but it's good to hear some of this again, and I'll just really summarize it as quickly as possible. There's this wicked, evil guy named Haman. He is just out for blood, right? And he's ready to kill all of the Jews. And he comes up with a plan because he's very powerful in the Persian empire and he has the king's ear, King Xerxes. So he tells the king, on this day, if we set a certain day and we allow all of the neighbors of all of the Jews and all of the kingdom and all of the world to kill them and pillage them, all that money is going to get taxed. It's going to come back into the king's treasury, and you're going to be even more wealthy. And King Xerxes is like, sure, okay, sounds good. Let's sign the decree. Now, Esther is the queen, and she hears about this plan. And Esther is Jewish, but she's been hiding it this whole time. And she said, through a series of events, I've got to do something. I've got to find a way to get justice. I've got to find a way to secure rest for the enemies of God's people. So she goes in and risks her life uncalled by the king. She goes in and falls at his feet. And he raises the golden scepter and allows her to stand in his presence without judgment. And she appeals to him. She says, will you please come to a banquet? You, Haman, we're going to throw this banquet. Right? I'm really summarizing here. Okay, So they go to the banquet. And it actually ends up being the second banquet. And they're sitting there. And Esther, King Xerxes is like, all right, you got my attention, Esther. What is your request? What do you want from me? And she says, you know, I, I just want to point this out, too. If you are a lawyer or something, you'll appreciate the kind of rhetoric that she uses here. Because she basically does three things. First, there's this simple premise. She says, King, if I have your favor, you know, you chose me. Our lives are intertwined. You set your love upon me. If I, if I have your favor, you know, you're a reflection of me, I'm a reflection of you as your queen, then I ask for this one request. Okay, what is it? And then she gives him the twist, part two, the shocker. She says, here's my petition, save my life. Save my life, spare my life, I'm about to be destroyed. And that's shocking, especially in light of the first thing she just said, 
Because their lives are intertwined. A threat to the queen is a threat to the king. So he's enraged. What? Who is threatening your life, Esther? She could have said, well, technically you are. She didn't do that. She was smarter than that. She said, this vile man, Haman, right here. It's the three of them at the table. And I could just imagine Haman's face like... (laughs) (laughs) And the king is incensed. He gets up and storms out and walks through the garden. And he's, you know, of course, not taking the blame for that. Modern, you know, monarchs never do. You know, he's fully blaming Haman for that. And he comes back in. But in the meantime, Haman is wiling out because he's thrown himself on Esther's couch to beg for his life, which is not only inappropriate, but it's against the law. You know, if you're a member of the king's harem, you know, and, and a guy can't get within seven steps of you in public, and he can't be alone in the same room with you un- unless he's a eunuch. And Haman's not a eunuch, so it's, this doesn't look good. He's, throwing, he's on the couch by Esther's feet, begging for his life. The king comes in, and now, kind of, you know, the problem's solved in a sense, you know, because Haman's life is forfeit. And you see in this verse, you see how hated Haman is, because immediately the servants are like, look, look what they say. They're like, um, you know, uh, King Haman has a pole he set up to kill Mordecai. He's like, Mordecai, the guy who saved my life? Yeah. What the heck, Haman? Like, dude, what are you doing? Impale him on it. So it's this poetic justice moment, right? And, and I think for me, as I'm reading this text and this story, and you've seen the buildup and all of the manipulation and how evil Haman is, in this moment, you're like, yes, poetic justice, the thing he was trying to use to kill everybody else, he's getting impaled on it. And you guys ever have that? You experience that like in a movie? The bad guy keeps doing worse and worse things and keeps getting away with it, and you get more and more angry at him. And finally at the end, you know, he falls down the elevator shaft, and you're like, yes! <laughs> or am I the only person who does that? <laughs> Problem solved, right? By the way, that, that word up, uh, Pole or gallows is just the Hebrew word tree. And it was the most disgraceful execution, most humbling, humiliating death anybody could die was to be cursed by being hanged on a tree. And we're not 100% sure whether he was actually hung on it or impaled on it. I like this NIV version because they say impaled, and I'm just, I don't know. I've got a little bit of that, like, yes, in me. So uh, you would impale them, and you would, um, you would humiliate them. So Haman's dead. Everything's fixed now, right? Did the Jews finally have rest from their enemies? No, not at all. We learn in the next chapter that, and as we started talking about last week, the king's decree can't be reversed. It's sovereign. So they can't just say, hey, we were kidding about that law the king passed. We're just going to change it. They have to do a new law. So they send out a new law, and the king gives them permission. Anybody who attacks the Jews, verse 11 here. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble to protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. So roles are reversed. And Esther was hoping that this would deter people from attacking the Jews. She's hoping they'd be like, okay, it's a bad idea, but no such luck, right? These people had been waiting for months. Imagine that. They're walking by their neighbor's house, and they're looking through the window, and they're like, that painting's going to be over my mantle. 
in a few months. You know, it's kind of like while I was on sabbatical, one of the things we did was we went to some yard sales and estate sales. Sometimes they'll take pictures of some of the stuff they're going to sell before the estate sale. And so, like, you're salivating. You can't wait to get there. You're like, ooh, I'm going to get that tiki mug, you know, whatever it is. It will be mine. And, but except in this estate sale, you didn't go and exchange money. You brought a sword, right? And you killed him, and you just took whatever you wanted. It's like, what the heck? These are brutal times. And these people are not going to be deterred. They muscled up. They grouped together. They're like, I want that tiki mug. This is terrible bloodshed. But God gave the Jews victory. And thousands of the Jews' enemies were killed. And we're told several times in chapter 8 and chapter 9 that even though it was legal, none of the Jews took any of the plunder of their attackers. Why? They could have. That's what the people were going to do to them. Might as well. I mean, it's a crappy situation. Might as well get something out of it, right? Why not take advantage of the situation? But they chose not to take the wealth in order to show that it was only self-defense. Their fight was actually an act of justice on their perpetrators, not an act of vengeance in which they were enriching themselves. We tracking? Because there's a big difference between those two words, justice and vengeance, right? There's an eye for an eye, not a life for an eye. If somebody takes your eye, you don't take out a gun and shoot them, right? Part of that eye for an eye thing, I think we get backwards sometimes. It was a limitation on violence, saying there's such a thing as justice. So finally, Esther has gotten rest from their enemies, right? It never lasts. It never, ever lasts. The rest from the enemies never seems to stick. Think about it. Moses secured them rest from their enemies. Joshua got them rest from their enemies. David gave it to them. Solomon gave it to them. These are the heroes. These are the messianic types, if you will, the the saviors, in a sense, of Israel. And they secured rest from the enemies, but it's always temporary. It never lasts. That's why the prophets of the Old Testament, like Isaiah and Daniel, prophesied someday a Messiah is going to come. And when he shows up, he's going to give a final, ultimate, total rest from our enemies. In fact, Daniel 7 keeps referring to him as the the son of man. And he's going to come back and he's going to wage war against evil and injustice. And finally, there will be rest from our enemies. And that brings us to point two, how Jesus gets us rest from our enemies. Because along comes Jesus Christ. And he calls himself the son of man. And everybody who's watching Jesus, whether they are his disciples or whether they're his critics, they know what that means. And they're just waiting for him to lead a rebellion against the enemies of Israel, against the Romans. In fact, there's this, there's this spot, like, uh, for instance, uh, Luke 9, the Sons of Thunder passage, right? There's this place where some people reject Jesus, and they start to act like his enemies. And the disciples turn to Jesus, and I think almost like with smiles on their face. They're like, hey, is it time? <laughs> you know, Jesus, remember that story about Elijah? that whole fire from heaven thing, can we do that to them right now? You know, think, like, this is a perfect time, Jesus. It's a great arrangement. They hate us. We hate them. Can we burn them up right now? That would be awesome. And Jesus, like, I can see him kind of, like, chuckling to himself nervously, like, you know. And then he rebukes them. And they get so confused. 
And throughout his ministry, I'm sure they just got more and more confused because as he's teaching, he starts to say things like, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. If they take your coat, offer them something else. If a Roman soldier comes to you and demands by law you have to run and carry his stuff for a mile, go to. Turn the other cheek. Forgive them 70 times seven. And they're scratching their heads. Wait a minute, I thought this was the Messiah, the one who's going to bring us rest from our enemies, the, the Son of Man. What's he doing? And then near the very end in Gethsemane, you guys remember that? In the garden, he's there praying, and they all come to arrest him, and I can just see it. It makes sense now, right? The disciples are like, oh, this is the time. Peter grabs the sword, cuts off the guy's ear. Yes! And Jesus says, Peter, put the sword away. They who live by the sword, what? Died by the sword. And he heals the ear, and he goes with them willingly to a cruel, false trial full of lies. And he sits there quietly. And they beat him, the kind of beating that kills most men. And then they lead him up a rugged hill carrying his own cross, and he dies an excruciating, humiliating death on a tree. And in his final breaths, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Why? What do we have here? Do we have what a lot of people think? Like a lot of people see the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they're like, man, Old Testament God is bloodthirsty. He's, he's out for blood. He's out for vengeance. He's setting everything right, you know, just like slashing his enemies down. And here comes hippie Jesus. <laughs> Flowers in his hair and, and words of love. They're like, man, it's two different gods. It's not even the same. How do you reconcile that? Along those lines, I think we have people who connect with one of those versions of the story or the other, to the neglect of the other one. There's the people who, they, in, the, in the name of grace and mercy, just throw out judgment and justice. And you end up with cheap grace. You want to read about that? Read Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It'll blow your mind. Or there's the people who, in the name of of judgment and justice throw out grace and mercy altogether and they end up with a twisted form of vengeance that's fueled by bitterness and resentment instead of true justice. Is that what we have? Is God divided against himself? Is he divided between these two ideas? Are there two different gods in the two testaments? No. What we have on the cross is Jesus loving his enemies, blessing those who are cursing him doing good to those who hate him. He's literally praying for those who are hurting him and persecuting him. Literally on the cross, we have Jesus dying for his enemies. And that, that is the ultimate warfare on evil. That brings ultimate rest from our enemies. And let me explain. Um, Jesus Christ, according to Paul in his letter to the Galatians, was hung on a tree. Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is 
hung on a tree. He redeemed us so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Jesus didn't say, oh, I don't believe in the judgment of God. Jesus believed in the judgment of God. Jesus taught on judgment and hell more than anybody else in the Bible combined. Jesus believed in justice. Of course he believed in that. You have to believe in justice. If you're a loving person, you have to believe there's some form of judgment on evil. And that's why when you know the backstory of what's going on with Haman and he finally gets the poetic justice, you're like, yes, because something within you cries out for justice. It's kind of like my favorite part of the car is the horn, right? Because it's a justice button. You cut me off. Get out of my way. You know what I mean? So justice, we love justice. But then just like, so Jesus, Jesus you know, uh, is, is put on this tree. But then just like Esther brought this shocker to her premise, Jesus brings a shocking twist to this whole idea of justice. He preaches about justice and judgment, and then he goes to a cross, and he's hung on a tree like Haman. For all the Hamans that we love to hate, Jesus died in their place. He took on the curse of Haman. For the, for the Haman that's in all of our heart that we don't want to acknowledge, He died on the cross. He takes that judgment upon himself. And here's the thing. Christ reveals God not as concerned with destroying his enemies as he is with destroying the enmity. He doesn't side with one side over another, one political party over another, one nation over another. Like, oh, this nation's good. This nation is bad. No. He says, we're all bad. We're all jacked up more than we like to know. We're all broken. He wants to destroy the evil and the injustice completely at the root. He wants to cut out the cancer that's eating away at the world he loves. And in Ephesians 2, we're told that Jesus Christ slew, not the enemy, but the enmity, the hostility that divides humans against one another. Look, if Jesus Christ had picked up a sword and walked over to Caesar's palace and ended the Roman Empire, he would have secured temporary rest from enemies. But when Jesus Christ went to the cross and hung himself up there for your sin and mine, he secured permanent rest from the enmity that divides us from a loving father and from one another. That is the ultimate warfare on enmity. You say, how is that the ultimate warfare on enmity? Think about this. Like if somebody wrongs you, somebody says some bad stuff about you and messes up your reputation, what do you do? You tell a bunch of people it's not true, and you probably ditch the dirt on them a little bit, right? And it's justified, and everybody would agree, like, it's justified. If somebody attacks you, somebody fights you, how do you, how do you fight? If you're going to fight somebody and they punch you, what do you do? You punch them as hard as you can and try to end the fight as quickly as you can, right? You know? Unless you're a boxer and you're, yeah, okay. Sorry. My brain went elsewhere. Coffee. (laughs) In other words, the natural mode of the human heart is to respond to hurt with hurt. We respond to gossip with gossip. We respond to violence with violence. Whack your enemy. If you whack them hard enough, you get some rest, don't you? Because then they're down for the count. They're in the hospital. They're dead. 
killed him. But the problem is you didn't whack the enmity. You just whacked the enemy. You know what you've done? You've actually made things worse. You've made the enemy worse. When you fight evil with evil, you don't beat evil, you spread it. And evil spreads in two ways. First of all, when you fight evil with evil, when someone wrongs you and you just whack them back, you become harder. You become colder. You become more self-righteous, don't you? I would never do what they did. And that gives me permission, right? The evil spreading and spreading to you. You're becoming harder. You're becoming colder. You're becoming more self-righteous. It's eating away at you, but not just you. If you hit them, let's say you put them down for the count. They're going to come back stronger. You kill them. Their kids are going to come back for vengeance. And you get into these cycles of violence and retaliation and brokenness. That doesn't fix anything. Evil spreads, and it goes on and on and on. Before Jesus, that's what we see with everyone who fought against evil. They secured temporary rest from the enemy, but the cycle would always come back around. Um, Kenny referenced uh, Miroslav Volf in one of the earlier sermons in uh, in Esther, and I want to read this quote from him. Miroslav Volf was a, he's a, he's a Yale professor in Yale Divinity School. He's brilliant, but he grew up in war-torn Croatia in the Balkans, you know, when all of the, um, the ethnic cleansing and things like that were going on up there, genocide. And he saw horrible things, saw atrocities. People's homes burned, people, um, sisters, daughters raped, killed, brothers, fathers, throats, threat, uh, throats slit, all kinds of horrible, horrible things. And he saw people going on for years and years in this cycle of violence and retaliation, vengeance. You did this to us, we'll do this to you. And it just builds and it becomes more and more hopeless and cynical and dark and endless. How do you break violent, uh, cycles of violence? In his book, he says that believing in a just God of judgment is the only way to end that cycle of cruelty. Listen to this quote. I have it up here too. If God we're not angry at injustice. God would not be worthy of our worship. The only way to make an end to violence is to insist that all judgment comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many, but it takes the quiet of a suburban home to imagine that human nonviolence somehow results from a belief in God's refusal to judge. Because in a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die along with many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If you talk to people who've gone through incredible loss at the hands of other people, burned homes, loved ones raped, violence, how are you going to keep them from picking up the sword and seeking vengeance on their enemies? What are you going to say? Well, you know, violence doesn't solve anything. Is that going to hit their heart? No way. That kind of moralizing won't touch them. It, it, it shows no concern for true justice. That's why. Anyone who's been terribly wrong believes justice needs to be done. Haman needs to be stopped. Get the pole ready. Right? Justice. That's the natural human response to injustice. And we all feel it in these moments. It's because we're created in the image of a God who is just. And Wolf says that the only resource we have that he knows powerful enough to both pacify the human's heart need for doing justice and to keep us from getting sucked into those broken cycles of violence and retaliation is that there is a God and he will put everything right. He will make an end to violence. He will judge the living and the dead. He will restore 
he's making all things new. You believe that? Wolf says that if you think not believing in God or not believing in the biblical God of judgment is going to keep people from being sucked into the cycle of violence, you're wrong. You don't believe somebody is going to make things right, so you will pick up the sword and you will get sucked in because somebody has to make things right. Therefore, he says, if you don't believe in that, the doctrine of God's judgment results in a peaceful life here on earth. You've had a sheltered life. That's what he says. You've not experienced violence and oppression. Belief in a God of judgment is crucial. It's about the only resource strong enough to help us, or he says, to help me as a Croatian, live in peace on earth. If God were not angry at injustice, that God would not be worthy of worship, he says. Look, I don't know what all you've been through in your life. There's a lot of people here. I'm sure there's a lot of stories. But I do know this. I do know that God hates injustice. He plans to end it, ultimately. Someone will pay for every sin that's ever been done to you or your loved ones. Either they will pay for themselves eternally or they will find themselves in Christ who paid it all for them and for you and I. But God promises ultimate rest from our enemies. And if you don't trust that, then you will never put down the sword. You will be walking from ship to ship looking for the cannons. <laughs> Didn't expect a laugh there, but <laughs> sometimes you just got to cut the tension, you know, with a laugh. But that's not all. Like on the cross, he also takes the judgment on himself. He doesn't just talk about judgment. He takes the judgment. He becomes the curse on the tree. Jesus becomes as vile and cursed as Haman so that we could be in loved and as accepted as he is. The cross is where those two themes collide, the justice and the mercy, the judgment and the grace, the Old Testament and the New Testament, because on the cross, judgment, hell, cosmic justice was poured out on Jesus so that free grace could be given to anyone who would receive it. The cross is where you resolve those tensions. And everybody up until Jesus gave temporary rest from enemies because they whacked the enemies instead of the enmity. But the best way to defeat evil is with what? It's with good. That's what we see on the cross. The cross of Jesus changes the way we war against evil. So now we handle enemies in a new way. We, we handle them with loving and forgiving and doing good to them. Look at what Paul says in Romans 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. Listen to this language. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. Believe room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? We can't overcome hurt with more hurt. You can't overcome violence with violence. We can't overcome evil with evil. We overcome evil with good. We respond to the evil force of, of this world with the violence of grace. The violence of grace. And you say, what do you mean the violence of grace? I mean, because that, that might sound weak, depending on how you define grace, right? 
violence of grace. You mean just like let it go? Just forgive it, sweep it under the rug, act like it didn't happen? That doesn't, where's justice in that? I'll tell you, um, during sabbatical, I did a lot of reading, and one of the books that, one of my favorite books, I got to read through it every once in a while, is Les Mis by Victor Hugo. And if you like the Broadway, and if you like the movie, brace yourself. Read the book. It's worth it. Such a good book. And in this moment, you guys, I'm sure most of you know the backstory. It's a very popular story. Briefly, Jean Valjean has been hit and hurt and beaten by people and misused. He stole a loaf of bread to feed his starving family in an environment where there's massive inequality, and he gets judged for it. He gets thrown into prison. He gets abused more, and he comes out a hardened man where now he's hurting people. He's hitting people. He's abusing people. He's become a bad man himself. Violence begets violence, right? And there's this story, the turn of the story, where he goes into the bishop's house, and he's been kicked out of every town, freezing in the cold, and the bishop brings him in around a fire, and they feed him, and they offer him a warm bed. But he's so twisted and gnarled up inside, the only way he knows how to do anything is to survive, so he steals away into the night with some of the precious silver, the few good things that the bishop has. And the next morning, as they're waking up and realizing that he's gone and some of their stuff is gone, the constable starts coming in, and they've got Valjean in chains. And they're laughing. Hey, Bishop, he says you gave him the silver. And the bishop looks Valjean in the eyes, and he says, I did. But why did you leave the silver candlesticks? And he goes into the house and gets his last two remaining possessions and brings them out to Valjean and hands it to him and tells the men to take the chains off and set him free. And the men are stunned, and they walked away. And Valjean is stunned, mouth agape. What's going on? And the bishop says to him, you remember that line? He says, I've bought your soul for God. No longer do evil. Do good. Take this silver. Become an honest man. And I want to read to you from the book. Listen to this paraphrase of the text. When Jean Valjean left the bishop's house, he knew the pardon of this priest was the hardest assault and the most formidable attack which he had ever sustained on his heart. See that grace assaults him. It's violent. It's powerful. It destroys the enmity. He knew suddenly that his heart, hardness of heart would be complete if he resisted this kindness. He knew, therefore, he must conquer or be conquered. It was no longer a middle course for him now. He would have to mount higher than the bishop or fall lower than the galley slave. If he would become good, he knew he'd become an angel. And if he would remain wicked, he knew he'd become a monster. He looked, he wept long and bitterly with more weakness than a woman, with more terror than a child, but he wept and a light grew brighter in his mind, a light at once transporting and terrible. And he beheld his life and soul. And it seemed to him horrible and frightful. Then he realized it was a soft light upon that life and upon that soul. And he realized he was looking upon Satan by the light of paradise. That's the gospel. How long did he weep thus? How long did he go on weeping? What did he do after weeping? Where did he go? Nobody ever knew. So it's only known this, that on the very night, a stage driver drove by the Grenoble route at 3 a.m. and saw a man in the attitude of prayer, kneeling on the pavement in the shadows before the house of the bishop. Victor Hugo, Jean Valjean, they knew something. 
There's nothing more formidable or terrifying or violent in the best possible way than the grace of God. Because when you give somebody grace, when you forgive them, number one, you set yourself free from the prison of bitterness and resentment. But number two, you create a pathway for them to change. Hmm. You give them the prospect of becoming a friend. That's the only way to destroy an enemy. It's by giving them grace. That's why Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous quote is, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Right? That's what Jesus did on the cross. The bishop's grace changed Jean Valjean. He realized he was being assaulted by grace. He would never be the same. He had to go higher or he had to go lower. Either way, in a sense, he'd be saved or he'd be damned. He would find himself forgiven in the light of one who paid the price or he would face that judgment himself infinitely. But the bishop's grace opened a pathway for redemption. Grace is astounding because it's so just and it's so free. Consider this for a moment. If the bishop, at the cost of a couple of silver candlesticks, changed Jean Valjean's life, what do you think Jesus was doing at the cost of his life? but changing us from enemies into friends. The minute you grasp the love and grace of God in the gospel, it changes you from an enemy to a friend. And it it sends you out into the world with rest from your enemies. How so? I I, want to end it with this. I'll make this point as quick as we can. How can we experience rest from our enemies? If you understand the gospel, you get rest from your enemies in two ways. One, first, do you realize, do you believe that Jesus Christ had to die for you. That your sin is that broken, that you're that bad, that you're that self-centered inside, like, like the famous onion analogy, you keep peeling and peeling away the layers of brokenness, and you get to the middle, and there's just nothing there. You know, it's like our hearts are like a black hole, and, and we wrap our whole world around it, and it's self-centered, and everything's revolving around us, and the more stuff we pull into the middle, the bigger the hole gets, and we just never get enough, and... Do you realize you're that self-centered? Do you realize you're that broken apart from the grace of Christ? Do you see how vacuous and empty and broken you are? That nothing less than the Son of God dying on the cross could save you. That's pretty humbling, isn't it? But here's what's so freeing about about that. That, if you believe that, that inoculates you against the spread of evil in the world. Think about it. When somebody does something wrong to you, when an enemy assaults you, when somebody does something horrible, what's the first thing you do? We all get on our high horse and we're like, how could they? I would never do something like that, right? We elevate ourselves. We look down on them. We begin to get so angry, so self-righteous. We begin to say, I would never do that. That's how evil keeps spreading, cycling around. But the gospel says, no, you're really no better. When you see broken stuff going on in the world, you don't get to get on a high horse and say, how could they? You say, man, in the same situation, I could end up doing almost the same thing. There goes me, but by the grace of God. You're a sinner saved by grace. So the evil doesn't have a place to get a foothold in your heart. It just keeps bouncing off because you realize you're broken. And therefore, if you get the gospel, your enemies can't make you hate them. If you hate your enemies then you don't know that you're a sinner saved by grace. 
To the degree that you hold on to resentment and brokenness and bitterness, you haven't seen your own brokenness and your own need and what it costs the Son of God to save you. You haven't been humbled by the gospel. And as a result, you're vulnerable. You're open. You'll never have a rest from your enemies. Your enemies can destroy you. They can control you with whatever it is that you value. The gospel humbles you out of your self-righteousness. And you're finally able to resist what the enemy does. You're free. Can you imagine this? Just imagine being free from the cancer of resentment in your life. Imagine being free from the root of bitterness, as Scripture describes it, that's growing down into your heart. Imagine being free from the cycles of violence and retaliation in this world. Gavin and I were talking about this. We, we read a scripture, and bitterness was in it. And, he, and so on the way to school, he said, what's bitterness, Dad? And I was like, that's when, I wrote a blog on this on Facebook. That's when, like, you're angry at somebody because they did something wrong to you, and so you don't want to forgive them. Because if you forgive them, they might do it again, or they might do it to someone you love. So you just hold on to it. But then, like, the anger just stays in there, and it grows, and it's like, it becomes cancerous. It begins to rot you from the inside out and change you and warp you, and you become bitter. And, and, you know, the anger, the way C.S. Lewis kind of describes it is that anger just keeps going on and on until there's no you left anymore, just the anger going on into, into eternity. And uh, he goes, why don't people just forgive that? It's not that easy, Gavin, you know? Like, you ever get mad at somebody and you, you don't, like, l- let it go? And he goes, I forgive them, but, you know, they're my friends. And then he, like, pauses and he's like, but some of them aren't. <laughs> and then he's like, I, I just don't play with them anymore. That's what he said. And I said, man, that's, that's exactly what we do, isn't it? We hold on to all that anger, and then we unleash it on them. All that unforgiveness, maybe some of us hold unforgiveness on ourselves. When somebody does this wrong, we release judgment on them, you know. Maybe we just don't play with people anymore. Maybe we, we lash out. As a pastor, I've had that conversation a lot with people, holding on to ongoing anger. And I was considering all this, and I realized something, that the key from freedom, key, the key to freedom from bitterness and resentment isn't just forgiving, it's repentance. Those who forgive well, repent well. In other words, if you can't see your own brokenness, you'll, you'll never be able to forgive others for theirs. But if you truly see your own brokenness in light of grace, you'll never be able to withhold forgiveness from others. So firstly, the gospel holds up a mirror and shows us we're broken. But also, secondly, do you believe that Jesus Christ willingly laid his life down for you in love for you? The gospel says that the Son of God thought you were worth dying for. He didn't go to the cross begrudgingly. He went there willingly. He lost Everything, he experienced infinite suffering and hell poured out on him at the cross because he loved you. And now because he's died for you, all your sins are thrown away. They're they're covered. They're forgiven. They're as far away from you as the east is from the west. You have a new heaven and a new earth guaranteed in your future. A Christian is one who's seen the truth of their brokenness and also seen the truth of their belovedness in the eyes of God. And that gives you rest from your enemies. You know how? I'll say this quickly. If your identity is in Christ, if you know that he's your all in all, and that what he's done for you secured your identity, that you're a beloved son or daughter, that your future is secured, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Look, 
if your identity is not in that, it's going to be in something else. So if your identity is in money, if, you're, you know, if your self-worth is in your net worth, so to speak, enemies can touch your money, right? Your identity is in your money. Your identity is going to be up and down with the stock market. People can always take advantage of you. They can control you based on that. But when your treasure is him and he, you know that you're his treasure, nothing can ever touch that. No enemy can ever control you or warp you or take advantage of your life. If your identity is, is locked up in what people think of you and your reputation, people can say some nasty stuff about you, and they've got you. But when you know your identity is wrapped up in the only two eyes in the universe that matter, and he looks down in love, he dances over you, he celebrates you, you're his son, you're his daughter, nobody can say anything that can really harm you or end you or destroy you. You see what I'm saying? If somebody comes up and threatens to kill you, say, hey, that would, that would suck, but mainly for you, the moment you do it, I'm going to be transformed into something more amazing, more beautiful, more glorious. If you saw what I was transformed into in that moment of death, you'd be tempted, tempted to worship. Right? You can't take my treasure. You can't take my identity, my security. You can't take my life. Therefore, your enemy doesn't have a foothold in your life. You're free. You tracking? If you're safe, you're loved, you're free because of the gospel, then you have rest from your enemies. What's this mean? You have rest from your enemies and they can't harm you, they can't control you. Now, if you go out into the world and you give what you got from Jesus, because if you forgive them, if you love them, if you don't repay evil for evil, but if you continually and graciously forgive them, and if you seek to reach out to them, then more and more enemies will become friends. There's part of us in our hearts that still don't want that. But that's what happened with you in Christ. And look at how it's transformed you. Imagine bringing that healing and love and grace out into the world. And sadly, not all enemies do become friends. Remember the end of Les Mis? Jean Valjean gets grace. It saves him. It transforms his life. But remember the end with Javert? the guy who can't get grace, and he finally sees grace, and it like fries his circuits. He can't handle it, and he commits suicide. Some people can't get grace because grace is traumatic. It always is. Grace is not weak. It's not namby-pamby. It's not anemic. It's powerful. And the grace of God will make you a friend of God, and it destroys the enmity between you and God, and it destroys the enmity between you and everyone else, and it sends you out into this world as agents of reconciliation. Do you want rest from your enemies? It's in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for not withholding anything good from us, for sending your son to take our place on that tree. Thank you for loving me enough in spite of my broken days and my best days, my good works and my bad works. You love me enough that I can actually look in the mirror. I can peel back the layers and I can see there's a little bit of Haman in my heart too. And that frees me from looking down my nose at everybody else who I disagree with. And I say, how could they? I would never free me from the rancor and the bitterness 
that would actually turn me into a Haman. Free us as a church to be agents of your reconciliation and your grace. And it's got to start right here in our heart with you. Transform us now. Free us from bitterness. Free us from the cancer of resentment that would eat us up from the inside. Free us to know how loved we are. So much so, God, help us to be so full of that love and that grace by the power of your spirit at work right now in this place that we would go out of here as agents of reconciliation. Transform us by your grace like like we saw in the story with Valjean. Free us from trying to repay evil for evil, but to repay evil with good. To love. To bless those that curse us. To do, do good to those who hate us. Persecute us. And not because we're better somehow, or not because... We're finding pride in our works and obeying Jesus' teaching. But because you did it for us and you've set us free like we were singing about. Because in all of our lives, there's a place where mercy's triumphed over justice and judgment. And your mercy reached in when we didn't deserve it. And now we can take communion today and remember that Jesus Christ lived that perfect life every day in the flesh in our place for every time we screw up. For every amount of bitterness I hold in my heart, he forgave. For every amount of resentment that would contort me from the inside, he loved and said from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. (laughs) Thank you for his perfect life lived in our place. As we take the bread, I pray you'd remind us that his righteousness is ours. And as we sip the cup, I pray you would remind us that his blood was spilt on that cross to pardon us and to pardon our enemies and to destroy the enmity between us and you and between one another so that we could actually look at people that we hate. We can look at people we fear. We can look at all these other people that we've allowed to control our lives and our emotions and our mental health, and we can look at them and we can say, I love you, I pardon you, I forgive you as I was pardoned and forgiven in Christ. Give us that kind of grace by the power of your spirit because we can't manufacture it on our own. We need you, Jesus. And may forgiveness start to flow in this church like never before. Help us to be a safe place, a, a space of grace for people who are wounded and hurt and broken by life where they can come and experience healing because Your spirit is at work. You're healing us from the inside out. I pray that not just in heaven, not just in the resurrection one day, but right now because of the gospel, we would begin to experience deep gospel rest from our enemies in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.